Hey there. If you're new to the show, a great way to follow our reporting when the podcast is over is NPR One. Hand-curated podcasts and audio stories ready when you are from NPR Politics and beyond. Find it in your app store now. NPR O-N-E. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our roundup of the week's political news. Bombings in New York and New Jersey, police shootings in Oklahoma and North Carolina, all just days before the first presidential debate, which is Monday, September 26th. Lots to talk about. We'll also discuss the millennial vote and answer a few of your questions. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Sam is on assignment. He'll be back soon. So here we are, first day of autumn, three days, yeah, three days from the first debate and 46 days and counting, less than seven weeks until Election Day. Does that feel like a long time? Or a short time. It's hard to believe, but it's actually been longer since the conventions than it will be before the election. Really? Yes. Okay. Hang in there, everyone. Uh, We are going to talk more about the debate and what to expect. But first, let's start with the news from this week. News that could become a big issue in next week's debate. Two more deadly shootings by police of black men, one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Terrence Crutcher was killed last Friday, and one in Charlotte, North Carolina, where Keith Lamont Scott was killed on Tuesday. And in North Carolina, the governor has declared a state of emergency after two nights of protests and violence. Uh, Donald Trump said this about it this morning. Well, it's wow. Here we go again. It's uh, very sad. When you look at what's going on, it's very sad. It's very divided, our country. And... uh it's uh, it's getting worse. So I'm not overly surprised to see it, but it's uh, it's happening. Why do you think it's getting worse? It just seems that there's a lack of spirit between uh, the white and the black. I mean, it's it's a terrible thing that we're witnessing. You're seeing it. Well, I'm seeing it. And you look at what went on last night in Charlotte, a great place. And uh, you just see it. There's a there's, there's somewhat, and I, and I see it even going out. There's, there's such a lack of, there's a lack of spirit. There's a lack of something. Something's going on that's bad. And what's going on between police and others is getting worse. You know, his talk about there being a lack of spirit between uh, the white and the black is something that's, you know, as crude as maybe it sounded there in the moment, as he described it, I think is a common theme that I have heard very frequently from voters this election season, from both people of color and and white folks who will say that they feel race relations are so much worse under President Obama. And what I think is so interesting is I've heard that time and again, going all the way back to the, the beginning of the primary season, that it has gotten worse under President Obama. And I think this is one of several issues that kind of the more you think about it politically, the more depressing it can leave you, because um, this is something where depending on whether you're in a Republican setting or a Democratic setting, it feels like you're in alternate universes when this is discussed. I mean, I think when we were all covering the conventions, this really came into contrast. When uh, at the Democratic convention, they had a whole a whole theme of the evening was about mothers of the movement, bringing out mothers of people shot and killed by police officers. It was um, a lot of empathy to that, a lot of uh, a lot of conversation about how these shootings need to stop. And then at a, a constant theme at Donald Trump rallies is, is support for police officers. A constant theme from some of his top surrogates like Rudy Giuliani is critiquing Black Lives Matter. 
So I think uh, it's just two different parallel conversations that don't interact with each other that much. And that's why it was particularly interesting um, that Donald Trump at one point this week expressed a lot of sympathy for the uh, for the Terrence Crutcher shooting in Oklahoma, saying that it seems like this is a man who did everything right. To me, it looked like he did everything you're supposed to do. And he looked like a really good man. And maybe I'm a little clouded because I saw his family talking about him after the fact. So you get a little bit, you know, different image, maybe. But to me, he looked like a you know, somebody that was doing what they were asking him to do. Then he said that and the uh, the police officer basically choked is the phrase that he used. And let me just jump in to say that late today, news broke that that female officer, Betty Shelby, will face first degree manslaughter charges. Did she get scared? Did, was she choking? What happened? But maybe people like that, people that choke, people that do that, maybe they can't be doing what they're doing. It, that suddenly sounds like there's a gender dynamic there, too. It certainly does. I mean, there's no way around it. I mean, he is totally supportive of the police officers, except one who happens to be a woman. And that is, I suppose, a coincidence. But there you have it. And that's the way it comes across in political terms, that he was calling this one police officer a choker. And that puts the weight on her as opposed to on police practices in general. And uh, in the case in, in North Carolina, we have an African-American officer. We have an African-American victim. We have all kinds of allegations about whether or not there was a gun. The family says there wasn't. The police say there was, we think, but actually the video isn't all that convincing one way or another, says the police chief, who is also African-American. So you have something going on here that is not simply racial. It has something to do with the relationship between police and particularly one part of the community. So this is all grist for everyone to talk about. It does seem like parallel universes when Democrats and Republicans talk about it, certainly when Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton talk about it. And here's a little bit of what Hillary Clinton had to say this week. There is still much we don't know about what happened in both incidents, but we do know that we have two more names to add to a list of African-Americans killed by police officers in these encounters. It's unbearable, and it needs to become intolerable. We also saw the targeting of police officers in Philadelphia last week. We are safer when communities respect the police and police respect communities. Related to policing, last night, Donald Trump did a town hall on Fox News with Sean Hannity. And during that town hall, he talked about policing tactics. Right, Scott? Yeah, first of all, I think I feel like we should point out that Donald Trump almost has a performance residency on Fox News at this point. He has not talked to the media in basically any format except long-form interviews with Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly and Fox and & Friends. But, for a uh, while now. For a while now, yeah. And uh, so so this is a, a town hall on African-American outreach, basically, that was taped with Sean Hannity. And in it, Donald Trump was asked by someone, you know, what can be done to reduce violence? And Donald Trump uh, praised stop and frisk, which he said worked wonderfully in, in New York City. I would do stop and frisk. I think you have to. We did it in New York. It worked incredibly well. And you have to be proactive. And, you know, you, you really help people sort of change their mind automatically. You understand. You, you have to have, in my opinion, I see what's going on here. I see what's going on in Chicago. I think stop and frisk. In New York City, it was so incredible the way it worked. 
And it was stopped in New York. It was. Uh, so just to recap, this is this is basically a policy where police officers could stop and frisk for weapons anybody that they reasonably suspected was was about to commit a crime without warrants or anything like that. Uh, this was by and large focused on minorities, particularly minority males. Uh, more than eighty percent of uh, of stops and frisks were of black or uh, Hispanic uh, people. So this was very controversial. It was probably the key issue in the mayor's race a couple of years ago. Donald Trump, though, is uh, supporting it, saying it, it worked smoothly. It was great. It eliminated all sorts of crime. And that's just not the way that many people viewed it. In fact, a federal judge stopped this program saying it was unconstitutional. And this comes in a time of his campaign when he's been doing a lot of, quote, outreach to the black community. I mean, that was a town hall aimed at African-Americans. It just seems like a disconnect because my sense is stop and frisk, highly unpopular, especially among African-Americans because of the way it worked out. Yeah, this has been a, a central theme of Trump's campaign for the past month. He talks about uh, it, it in nearly every stump speech that he gives, basically making this pitch to black voters saying, what do you have to lose? You should you should vote for me because you always vote for Democrats and things aren't going well for you right now. I think Wednesday was was a great look at this strategy and how all over the place it is in just kind of uh one, one under day. a microscope because he, he he makes this comment about uh, kind of expressing empathy for, for Terrence Crutcher. Then uh, that happens at an event at a black church where Don King is speaking. Don King, controversial boxing promoter, uh, served time for manslaughter, among other things, in a very all over the place uh, checkered past. But Don King accidentally says the N-word when he's introducing Donald Trump. And then uh, later in the day, Trump voices support for stop and frisk. So can I chime in here? I feel like we keep talking about Trump having this African-American outreach because it's something his campaign has dubbed as such. Yeah. But when I go to North Carolina and I talk to African-American voters and they literally laughed when I asked them about this because to them it doesn't feel like any genuine outreach. I mean, overwhelmingly, the African-American community already tilts very, very Democratic, but to them does not feel like they're like he's even trying to legitimately try to earn their vote. And the other reason that this is is kind of a non-starter for so many people, well, there's a couple different reasons, but one is that what Donald Trump is saying is by and large not based in reality. He talked uh, this week about how it's the worst time ever, oh, yeah. ever, 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 he repeated, to be a black American. Well, first of all, obviously, as Barack Obama and John Lewis pointed out, that skips over a couple hundred years of history, including slavery and Jim Crow. So, But that aside, just taking a look at the stats, the unemployment rate for black Americans has dropped. Uh, the uninsured rate has dropped. Life expectancy has gone up. And by and large, as uh, our colleague Scott Horsley actually did a long story about how black Americans have fared under uh, Barack Obama's presidency, by and large, uh, black Americans lag behind uh, the bulk of the country when it comes to a lot of these indicators, like un the unemployment rate. But things have clearly gotten better over the last couple decades. So a lot of what Trump's saying just isn't, isn't squared with, with the data. Two things that strike me about the way Donald Trump talks about the plight of the black American. One is that he uses these superlatives to say it's worse than it's ever, ever, ever been, as you said, Scott. The other is that there is always a not too subtle implication that it is so because of Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. That he has, in some sense or another, and Osma was saying how she hears this from people of all races, that people feel race relations have deteriorated 
under the first African-American president. And why is that? Why do people feel that's true? Is it because of something Obama has done? Or is it because perhaps of the way people have reacted to his being president? We saw this in the very early days of the Tea Party movement in 2009 to 2010, when it had a very strong tinge of racial attitude and racial animus in it. Now, ultimately, I don't think that's what the Tea Party was all about by any means. But it had a tinge. I also would say that with respect to these police shootings, as horrific as they are, and as we have had police shootings of young black men for a very, very long time, as long as there have been guns, police, and young black men, and they are not necessarily more numerous than they were in the past, but they are at least being Broadcast. publicized. They, Whenever there's video, whenever there's a way to get some facts about what happened. Uh, as a young reporter in the Midwest, uh, we were unearthing cases of young black men who had been shot in the back by the police 10 and 20 years earlier, but a cop had finally come forward and said, this is on my conscience. I absolutely have to talk about it. That was the only way it ever got into the news, but it was happening and it was happening all the time. Well, the other big news from the early part of this week was when a bomb went off Saturday in New York City, injuring 29 people. Another one was found, but it didn't go off. And that was later connected to a bomb that exploded days earlier in New Jersey. The suspect, a naturalized citizen born in Afghanistan who came here as a young child, was captured after a shootout on Monday morning. The mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, came out and said it looks like an act of terror. Those were the facts Monday morning when Donald Trump went on Fox News and reiterated his call to restrict immigration. He said, we have to get tough. What do you mean by getting tough, though? Like we're going to have to hit them much harder over there, and we're going to have to find out. You know, our police are amazing. Our local police, they know who a lot of these people are. They're afraid to do anything about it because they, they don't want to be accused of, uh, of uh, profiling and they don't want to be accused of all sorts of things. You know, in Israel, they profile. They've done a, an unbelievable job, as good as you can do. Sure. Uh, but Israel has done an unbelievable job, and they'll profile. You... They profile. They see somebody that's suspicious, they will profile. They will take that person in. They'll check out, do we have a choice? Look what's going on. Do we really have a choice? We're trying to be so politically correct in our country. Mm -hmm. And this is only going to get worse. This isn't going to get better. And I've been talking to you guys for years. You have. And I've been saying it. This well, is only going to get worse. And what I said is you have to stop them from coming into the country. He Did acts you? like profiling is something that people don't already think is happening. Right. Well, <laughs> well, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll I just, just be honest. Out. When you get held at the airport and you go into the holding room and you're a brown person and everybody else in that room is a fellow brown person, it doesn't really feel like it's always random. And, and you know what? Uh, hearing that, uh, since I've uh, I've been listening to a lot of Donald Trump's Fox and Friends interviews this week, uh, it's almost word for word exactly what he said about violence in inner cities uh, when he was talking about soft and frisk. He said police officers, they know who these people are. They know who the people with guns are. That's almost word for word what he's saying about profiling uh, terror suspects as well. Also, the young man who perpetrated these acts allegedly in New York over the weekend entered the United States from Afghanistan at what age? He was a little kid when he came here, right? And obviously you're not going to be able to vet children uh, effectively to know what they're going to do when they're adults. On the other hand, he did also as an adult go back to Afghanistan. 
And, and then, Pakistan. And Pakistan. And then when he comes back, we find his father saying, hey, he's, he's, he's looking into al-Qaeda. He's interested in jihadist poetry and telling the authorities they ought to keep an eye on him. So that's a little different situation from holding people out in the first place because they're refugee families from the region. And the implication that somehow some of these Syrian families that are coming in now are going to be immediate threats or that they're, they're in some sense or another sapper squads who are coming in to bomb us. Here again, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Trump has the "we need to get tough" uh, line, but but when it comes to how to deal with terrorism, it always comes back to immigration. That's that's his answer. It says we need to be tough on immigration. We need to not let certain people into our country, and that was most glaring this summer after the Orlando Pulse nightclub shootings when the uh, the shooter was born in the United States. When Trump said, "Yeah, well." If we hadn't let his parents in, this wouldn't have happened. Or their parents. Yeah. Well, and this gets at, you know, the larger public policy challenge, which is how do you stop a lone wolf? It's really hard. If somebody self-radicalizes and then starts buying things on eBay that can make bombs but can also make things that aren't bombs, how do you find the needle in a haystack, which is very hard? And there aren't a lot of satisfying answers that come from politicians. Some people may remember the name Timothy McVeigh, who blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City in 1995. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing immigrant about Timothy McVeigh, and everything he was buying was sort of an agricultural product that uh, could be put together with something else and something else and a big enough truck and blow up an entire building, size more or less of a block. So, yes, this is a challenge to any open society. Hillary Clinton also weighed in on the bombing later that same Monday morning. She said this at a press availability on the tarmac in New York. This is the kind of challenge that law enforcement can be and is prepared to address, namely going after anyone who would threaten the United States. Uh, so I am absolutely um, in favor of and have long been uh, an advocate for tough vetting for making sure that we don't let people into this country, and not just people who come here uh, to settle, but we need a better visa system. Let's remember what happened on 9-11. These were not refugees who got into airplanes and attacked our city and our country. So let's not get diverted and distracted by the kind of campaign rhetoric we hear coming from the other side. This is a serious challenge. We are well equipped to meet it. And we can do so in keeping with smart law enforcement, good intelligence, and in concert with our values. To me, this is just a microcosm of the campaign. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hillary yeah. Clinton comes out. She gives a, a statement that is based in the reality of our current system and outlines some challenges. And Donald Trump comes out and makes big, splashy proposals that get everybody talking about it. And and basically, no one talked about what Hillary Clinton said because it wasn't news. But I was going to say, maybe the reason it doesn't get as much attention is because it didn't offer some sort of concrete answer, right? I feel like when chaos happens, as such, right, it felt like in New York, New Jersey, that there were these bombs and, and people were sort of in this moment of, of panic or concern. Here comes Donald Trump and he's offering you this new solution. Profile folks. This is something new. And Hillary Clinton says we should be tough. We should have good intelligence. But she's not offering you anything that's like concrete. I'm not saying that that makes her plan worse or better. I'm just saying maybe folks crave that clarity. And they crave the anger that he has. Because I think, you know, we've talked before about 
how Barack Obama has reacted to to ISIS and to other kind of scary things with this this clinical kind of no logical answer mm-hmm. that that a lot of people leaves a lot of people short because yeah, like Spock yeah. he comes out and he's Dr. Yeah. Spock and he's like we're going to deal with this this way I think you're right though that those two responses and the settings that they happened in and the tone and the content of them is the general election into 20 minute chunks yeah that's <laughs> oh, it man. in a nutshell and how about the general election in a hard candy shell? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so for people who did not follow the Twitters earlier this week, Scott, catch us up. What What is the Skittles controversy? So this is a meme that Donald Trump Jr. tweeted out Monday night. It was a bowl of Skittles. And uh, the caption said, if I had a bowl of Skittles and I told you just three would kill you, would you take a handful? That's our Syrian refugee problem. This uh, meme was not uh, original. Some variation of this has been floating around the Internet for a while. But this uh, this got a lot of people angry and I think kind of took on another life when people contacted Wrigley, the maker of Skittles, for their response. And, and they were pretty blunt. Uh, they, they basically said, Skittles are candy. Refugees are people. We don't feel it's an appropriate analogy. And went on to say, we're not going to say anything else because we don't want to give the impression that we're trying to market off of this. And, uh, you know, there was no apology from Donald Trump Jr. The campaign basically said any anger about this was political correctness run amok. But, uh, you know, this this comes at a time where the Obama administration and a lot of other groups are working hard to try and humanize the refugee problem and saying people being driven from their country are poisonous candy uh, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And this happened pretty immediately. People started tweeting out pictures of refugee children, including that little boy in the in the ambulance uh, in Aleppo, with captions that were like, "Not a skittle." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, Donald Trump Jr. is like the master of tweeting out memes that are challenging or problematic. Is that a thing to be a master of? I don't know, but <laughs> he, master. he is like the family Twitter bum who tweets out things that create problems for the campaign. It's like... hard to imagine where he got that habit. <laughs> <laughs> and and one stray end we haven't talked about, Donald Trump on Friday night suggested that the Secret Service protecting Hillary Clinton should disarm. She wants to destroy your Second Amendment. And we should see what happens to her. I think that her bodyguards should drop all weapons. They should disarm, right? right? I think they should disarm immediately. What do you think? Yes, yes, yeah. Take their guns away. She doesn't want guns. Take their, let's see what happens to her. Take their guns away. We should point out that he has said variations on this before. And I think we should also point out that What he calls bodyguards is, of course, her Secret Service detail. He has one just like it. They are not bodyguards in the sense that somehow she requires some kind of special protection that he does not require or other presidential candidates do not. Another little subtlety in his language. Uh, But the real point here is not that he is saying, hey, let's see what happens if she doesn't have any Secret Service protection, although a lot of people took it that way. What he's saying is... If she has such reservations about guns, let's see how she likes it if she doesn't have someone with a gun protecting her, which most of us don't as we walk around. And that's why we need to carry guns around to protect ourselves. Now, of course, Hillary Clinton has never said she opposed the Second Amendment or would repeal it. She has, in fact, said she will not repeal it. Of course. But nevertheless, it is an article of faith. 
among many of Donald Trump's supporters that Hillary Clinton would try to take their guns away. I guarantee you if she's elected, there will be a run on the gun stores as you've not seen since the day after Barack Obama was elected president. Of course, no guns were confiscated other than in the normal course of police business uh, during the Obama years. And it seems very unlikely that would happen under a Hillary Clinton presidency since, after all, she can't repeal any amendments to the Constitution as president without an overwhelming vote of Congress and most of the states of the union. So all of that is fantasy. But nonetheless, it is a strong point with the Trump audiences and is always a popular part of his rallies. So it has been a very busy news week. And one thing that maybe you did not hear about because it was such a busy week is the millennial vote. Hillary Clinton has put a lot of emphasis this week into courting young voters. She sent Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to campaign in Ohio. She's published op-eds in places like Mike.com. And she gave a big speech about the millennial vote in Philadelphia this week. Here's a clip. As you know better than most, tuition keeps going through the roof and debt keeps piling up. I understand that Temple was founded to democratize, diversify, and widen the reach of higher education. That is still a vital goal. So I worked with Bernie Sanders on a plan. We came up with a plan that makes public college tuition-free for working families and debt-free for everyone. But Asma, this is a group she has some work to do with. She, she certainly has a lot of support among millennial voters, so I don't want to dismiss that. But she's underperforming Barack Obama with this group quite a bit. And you see that in some of the polling that showed both Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, and Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, are polling in the double digits collectively among millennials. And that's a problem for her because, you know, I have met young voters who tell me that that they are excited to vote in theory. You know, they are people who are engaged in the political process. It's not like they're apathetic non-voters, but they don't like the choices in front of them. Um, I mean, I met this young woman, Melissa Gomez in Orlando recently. She was a Barack Obama voter and a Bernie Sanders supporter during the primaries. I, I'm actually leaning more towards Gary Johnson, which is kind of, I know, a waste of a vote in a sense, because I feel like any vote that's not for Hillary is going to be a vote for Trump. And that's kind of upsetting to me. So it's like I'm still on the fence about what I'm going to do. But I don't honestly agree with anybody's actual platform. So it is a problem. And so she said that she's not 100 percent sure if she's going to cast a ballot for Gary Johnson. And I said, well, when are you going to decide? What are you going to do? And she said, well, I live in the state of Florida. I recognize that it's a really, really competitive state. And so she said, I may just make up my mind at the last minute, depending on how tight the polls look. Because while she really doesn't like Hillary Clinton, she told me she dislikes Donald Trump even more. But that's not enough of a compelling argument for everyone. I met this other young guy, Mohammed Sher. He's a, a lawyer. And, and he was also a Bernie Sanders supporter and told me he's no fan of Hillary Clinton. Because none of her policies reflect our values and what we want. None. Well, like, on health care, she isn't in the same place on health care. Uh, criminal justice, she isn't in the same place on criminal justice. Um, uh, environment. Uh, I don't think we're on the same place in the environment. And so, you know, basically, he, he wants universal health care. He's just very left of center on a lot of things that he doesn't feel that the Democratic Party, particularly being led by Hillary Clinton, is at right now. And I feel like the health care comment especially is just so eye-opening because Hillary Clinton 
was the driving force in pushing for for a liberalization of health care. He, he is 24. And so I, I do want to put that in the context of how much Hillary Clinton's 90s years would have really been relevant. To Zero. Him. Yeah. And, and I think that gets into something that Asma and I talked a lot about at our desk this week. And that's kind of this divide between older millennials and younger millennials in terms of who they support and how they view issues. Maybe we can call older millennials since Will Smith is near and dear to us. Uh, Willennials for the, for the purpose of this conversation. Oh. Willennium. Um, Let's just say Willennium is perfect. Okay. So we'll just call Let's older, just what, uh, north, of, north of 30? North for of the 30. Purpose. Uh, so north of 30, Willennials. Willennials. Who have hard memories of the 2000 recount, of 9-11, of George W. Bush's presidency, of the rise of Barack Obama. Fair to say they're much more attached to the Democratic Party? Yeah, I mean, I've seen some polling from Circle, which is this um, civic institute at Tufts University that focuses on youth engagement. They did some analysis that um, they don't have sort of huge pools. So we'll sort of take this for what it is in terms of breaking down the percent of voters who would have been John Kerry first-time voters. So this would have been the 2004. 2004. And then Obama 2008 election voters. And then Obama 2012 election voters. What I think is interesting is that Barack Obama actually has the highest favorable ratings among that first group, which would have been 2004 voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think as Scott said, they were the folks who were actually probably working out on the campaign during Obama's 2008 election. And I don't know if there's like hard data to prove this up. I mean, I think we saw during the primary season, we did see some differentiation between the 20s and the 30-year-olds in terms of Bernie Sanders support and Hillary Clinton supporters. So is is what you're saying that the people who are in- entertaining dancing with Jill Stein and Gary Johnson they have they have less strong memories of the year 2000 and and the but Bush not v. I should say exclusively because Melissa Gomez who we heard from earlier she is 34 and so I do think there's a you know a range and so that would have made her old enough to remember all of these same things but I do think that. Look, I don't know if it's the memories or if people are at a different stage in their lives. And we often see people making different economic choices as they get older. Um, So maybe that's a part of it as well. Well, and that's the interesting thing about millennials. Like the way to reach millennials is not just to talk about college expenses because it turns out a lot of millennials actually care about child care expenses. 90 percent of babies born roughly last year were born to millennials. And so child care is a huge issue for this population. Speaking of reaching millennials, uh, just hot fresh on the Internet today, Hillary Clinton went on Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis. Thank you very much, Mrs. Clinton, for being here. Critics have questioned some of your decision making recently. And by you doing this show, I hope it finally lays that to rest. Oh, I think it it absolutely proves our case, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, so this is an internet show. It's on Funny or Die, on the website Funny or Die. Basically, Zach Galifianakis comes in, and he's an interviewer. They have two chairs between two ferns. And he asks, usually celebrities, the most inappropriate questions you can possibly think of. Not to take away from the historic significance of you perhaps becoming the first female president, but for a younger, younger generation, you will also become their first white president. And that's pretty neat, too. As secretary, how many words per minute could you type? And how does President Obama like his coffee? Like himself? Weak? You know, Zach, those are really out-of-date questions. I'd love to meet the person who makes your pantsuits. 
Oh, really? Yeah, because for Halloween, I wanted to go as a librarian from outer space. I, I think that would be a good look on you. Have you thought about what you're going to be wearing at the debates? You know, there's this thing called the double standard. Do you wonder what your opponent might be wearing? I mean, what well, do you... I, I assume he'll wear, you know, that red power tie. Or maybe like a white power tie. Whoa. <laughs> That's even more appropriate. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Mrs. Clinton. We should stay in touch. What's the best way to reach you? Email? <laughs> Uh, that's brilliant. I mean, I've seen a bunch of these between two ferns, and I've never seen one better written than that. That's just outrageous. I, I know we're going to talk about the debate in a little bit, but I actually, like, watching that, I felt like maybe the best approach she can take to whatever Donald Trump shows up at the debate is that kind of droll, eyebrow-arching tone that she had throughout this video. I feel like that's a good, like, way to pop the balloon of, 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 of somebody who's kind of out of left field. And I don't know. Maybe that could work. Well, they've talked I didn't about, think about that. Debate talk, strategy. Yeah. They've talked about having di- different people play Donald Trump in her pre- preparation for mm-hmm. the debate, right? And have, you know, be sparring sessions that they have. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe a, a succession of comedians would, would actually be a good way to do it. One thing we don't have a ton of time to discuss, but um, I did do a web story. So go check it out if you can. Hillary Clinton is... In addition to courting millennials, she's also courting the disabled community. She did a speech yesterday that was about uh, creating more economic opportunities for disabled people. This is not like a standard way for a candidate to campaign. This is not a a demographic that that candidates typically target. It seems like a really interesting choice. It was really interesting. And I enjoyed your story, Tam. I just felt like reading it gave me this glimpse into how many people in the country not only have disabilities, but to what degree that they are sort of economically undervalued and politically undervalued as well. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I learned, which was shocking in the course of working on the story, is that there are 400,000 people in America who are disabled, who are paid sub-minimum wage. The sign language ad popped up in my various feeds a couple times this week. I thought it was really striking. It's basically uh, somebody speaking in sign language. There's no sound at all, just talking about uh, various policies that Hillary Clinton would put in place for disabled Americans and how uh, how he feels like not many candidates care about people like them. So I don't know. It was an interesting ad. Before we go to the break... President Obama has announced that he's about to start spending a lot more time on the campaign trail, like a couple of days a week even over the next seven weeks before Election Day. He spoke Saturday night to the Congressional Black Caucus Gala, um, and he gave a speech that might be one of the most impassioned speeches we've seen from him in a very long time. We're just going to play a couple of minutes of it for you. But Ron, why is this worth hearing? It's worth hearing because we have not heard Barack Obama really get down into the struggle in the trenches of this political campaign. She needs his passion. She needs his ability to rally people. He is a much better stump speaker than she can ever dream of being. And also she needs his ability to mobilize people of color because she needs to get upwards of 80 percent of the vote of all people of color who do turn out to vote in November. And that number needs to be in and of itself at record levels for her to win. And Barack Obama can play a role in getting those people enthused, even if they aren't enthused about her. Here he is. My name may not be on the ballot, but our progress is on the ballot. Tolerance is on the ballot. Democracy is on the ballot. Justice is on the ballot. Good schools are on the ballot. Ending mass incarceration, that's on the ballot right now. And there is one candidate who will advance those 
those things. And there is another candidate whose defining principle, the central theme of his candidacy, is opposition to all that we've done. There's no such thing as a vote that doesn't matter. It all matters. And after we have achieved historic turnout in 2008 and 2012, especially in the African-American community, I will consider it a personal insult, an insult to my legacy, if this community lets down its guard and fails to activate itself in this election. You want to give me a good send-off? Go vote! That was the President Barack Obama last Saturday. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk more about next week's debate when we come back. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. And we're back. Let's talk about the big night next week, Monday, Monday, Monday. And it's not football. No, there will be a football <laughs> game happening at the same time. 9 p.m., Hofstra University, Lester Holt moderating the first debate of the general election. It will be on TV, also live streamed on YouTube and Twitter, um, NBC News, obviously, with Lester Holt. Uh, and NPR is airing it, too. We're doing live special coverage, including some NPR politics regulars. Um, and we will have an episode in your feed recapping all of it with analysis first thing Tuesday morning. All right. So what are we expecting from this matchup? The first thing we're expecting is an enormous audience. They're talking about 100 million people listening to this. So if we're expecting 120, like yeah. to this. <laughs> most of them will probably be watching it, but whatever. Well, I mean, all of us will imagine the two characters uh, in our minds as we listen. But uh If we have an expectation of 120, 130 million votes being cast in November, most of those people are probably going to be in some sense or another witnessing this debate and possibly having their votes influenced by it. Great debate among sociologists and political scientists over how much the debates really matter, but at least in the popular imagination, going back to 1960 and thinking about 1976 and 1980 and so on, many of us have felt as though the election, if it didn't turn on the debate, at least it was strongly influenced. Can you give me one example? By the Ron? images and the impressions left. Yes, I can. Of like when that happened. And yeah. it's an unusual one. In 1984, in the first of two debates between Walter Mondale and Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan was all stumbling over the map. He was clearly a little disoriented. He was not sure of his facts. He referred to the uh, military equipment that was being used by uh, U.S. service personnel as wardrobe. Uh, he was. He, <laughs> well, he was an actor. And, well, yes, and, but Ronald Reagan was disturbingly off his game. And a lot of people noticed it. And the next weekend's cover of Time magazine was two horses neck and neck and asking the question, a real horse race? And this was not supposed to be a close election. Ultimately, it was not. Mm -hmm. The second debate 
even though Ronald Reagan had another kind of spacey moment at the end where he lost his train of thought and his final remarks, he was saved by the moderator who said, Mr. President, I believe your time has expired. But earlier in the debate, he had put it all aside with a perfectly timed jibe when he was asked whether or not age should be an issue in the campaign. He said, absolutely not. I have steadfastly refused to make an issue of my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> and and I the place went nuts. I mean, I'm sitting there in the auditorium and I just put my pen in its little cap and said, this election is over. <laughs> and and it was not a close election, ultimately. 49 states for Reagan, one for Mondale. But, but the quip, I think, raises the question of the big wild card for what happens Monday, and that's what does Donald Trump do? Yeah. I mean, every primary debate, he came out, he got into big fights. He But he, he had quips. He, he did have quips. Master he did have ways. quips, but it was always kind of a mud wrestling match that Donald Trump was in the middle of. And that was that was sometimes because he was attacked, but other times he would kind of take an attack and, and turn it into a mud wrestling type match. I think the moment that comes to mind as the most extreme off the wall moment of possibly the presidential campaign was Donald Trump referencing his genitalia on the debate stage. So, I mean, the question is, does that Donald Trump show up? Does the much more scripted, measured, toned Donald Trump of the last four weeks show up? Which Donald Trump is more advantageous to his campaign? I wouldn't call him measured in the last four weeks entirely, but maybe the the Donald Trump of... Grading on a scale as one does with candidate Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, so perhaps the, perhaps a better analogy really is the 1980 debate. There was only one debate between Carter and Reagan. The race was close. Carter might have been a nose ahead. Maybe Reagan was a little bit ahead. But the big question everybody still had in 1980 was, can I picture Ronald Reagan as president? Or is he just really kind of, uh, you know, a former actor? And he had a masterful performance. Carter wasn't terrible. He said a couple of things that probably hurt him. But the real point that everyone got was how at ease he was, how completely in charge of the stage he was. And you could not stop but say how presidential he was. And Carter just seemed a little goofy by comparison, even though he'd been president for four years. So that was a devastating moment after that. The election clearly turned in Reagan's favor. All the polls showed it. That, too, was not a close election in the end. The Clinton campaign says that they are preparing for multiple different versions of Donald Trump that they are going to be prepared for whichever Donald Trump shows up. Now, that seems to be also casting a little shade on Donald Trump uh, as they discuss their debate preparations. The Clinton campaign also says that they are concerned. And of course, when campaigns talk about debate preparations, this is called expectation setting, you know, so that when the debate is over, the punditry will respond to the expectations more than they will respond to the actual debate itself. But what the Clinton campaign folks are saying is that they are concerned that Donald Trump will be graded as a reality TV star business guy and that Hillary Clinton will be graded as a politician, former secretary of state, and that Donald Trump will have to clear a much lower bar than Hillary Clinton in order to quote unquote, win the debate. And the opinion Nieto joint availability, I think, is the the best indicator we have of this. this That's is the when, Mexican president. Yes. When Donald Trump went to Mexico City in August and, and literally just stood next to Enrique Peña Nieto and read a statement. And it was, wow, he's so statesmanlike. Look at the way he he really masterfully pulled that off. And, and, and Donald Trump did deserve a lot of credit, or his campaign rather did, for for on zero notice popping into the capital of another country and having a meeting and joint availability. 
But the fact is, he basically read a sheet of paper and was was viewed as a statesman by a lot of people. Well, he didn't insult anyone, and he yeah. didn't go off. He didn't, you know, go go off, fly off the handle. So debates are also a chance for moderators and opponents to bring up sore spots for the candidates. We can expect to hear, of course, about Hillary Clinton's email, probably her foundation. What about? Donald Trump's birtherism. It seems like that, you know, we had an episode where we talked about how it was over. Well, not really, but where we talked about how he said, well, look, I've settled it. It seems as though he didn't actually settle it. There was an interview um, that he did yesterday with uh, an ABC affiliate in Ohio. After all the years where you've expressed some doubt, what changed? Well, I just want to get on with, uh, you know, we want to get on with the campaign. And a lot of people were asking me questions. And, you know, we want to talk about jobs. We want to talk about the military. We want to talk about ISIS and how to get rid of ISIS. I think I want to push back a little on what you said there, because I was in the room on Friday when Trump made this announcement. And I don't think there was any any uh, viewpoint that he settled it. In fact, the way that the Trump campaign orchestrated that event, it was explicitly choreographed so that Donald Trump would not have to answer reporters' questions about what persuaded him. Why did he decide to decide to address this now after being asked about it his entire presidential campaign? Was he sorry for his role in pushing this, this line that was clearly not true? These are all questions Donald Trump still has not answered. He's clearly not apologetic about it at all based on that answer to a local TV station. And I think uh, it's a pretty safe bet that those are some themes that Hillary Clinton's going to bring up again and again Monday. Yeah. And also, one other thing that likely would come up at the debate is the Trump Foundation. Um, for the longest time, all the news was about the Clinton Foundation. Now there's been a flurry of news about the the Donald J. Trump Foundation. We talked about this before on the show, but there's more now. Uh, Washington Post reporter David Farenthold um, has been just digging through public records. He's been calling charities. And the latest thing that he's found is that the Trump Foundation, which for the last eight years or so has gotten only money from other people, not from Donald Trump, that that foundation has used funds to settle legal matters, not foundation legal matters, but Donald Trump business legal matters. And this would be self-dealing, which is not allowed. By the IRS, which regulates the tax-free status of the foundation. And this does, it, it of course segues into the larger consideration of why he's never released his taxes, which uh, for a long time he was saying he couldn't because of the audit, but of course the IRS has no stricture against him releasing the returns. Others have done so. Uh, all presidential candidates in the last 40 years have released their tax returns. Uh, he refuses to do so and comes up with different excuses for it, which of course now we have another potential line of potential questioning now about the tax foundation, although a lot of it has been about what his dealings may be with people in Russia, how much money he has borrowed from Russians, and things of that nature. So I think probably his response to the fair and hold stories will be what his campaigns has been, which is to say those stories are full of factual inaccuracies, but we'll wait and see, because we haven't heard any yet, if they have specific inaccuracies to cite. Okay, one more quick break. We'll be right back with a few of your questions and can't let it go. Hey, before we get back to our show, I want to let you know about another great show we think you'll like, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's basically the NPR politics podcast if we only talked about pop culture. In fact, we modeled our show's format on theirs, which you'll hear if you check out the show. 
And also our own Sam Sanders was a guest on theirs in a recent episode about documentaries and mockumentaries. Check out Pop Culture Happy Hour at npr.org slash podcasts or on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. We are back. Let's answer a couple of listener questions. And a reminder, we are answering many more of your questions, including your recorded ones, and especially ones about the debate, in our Monday Mail episode out Monday morning. Here is a letter from Paul in California, which I believe I have to read. <laughs> he's, he's from, but he's another Central Californian. I know. So he's from Baco. You should okay, read it. Paul from Bakersfield, California says... When Chris Wallace talked about his role as the moderator of a presidential debate, he said it's not the job of the moderator to fact check everything the candidates say. Instead, his focus will be on trying to maintain some reasonable semblance of equal time. Is it common for presidential debate moderators to let the candidates say whatever and leave it to their opponent to say otherwise while focusing on equal time? Or do moderators generally call out candidates when they are clearly lying, misrepresenting the facts? Ron, you've been to many debates before, right? That's yes, what yes. yes. Well, the, the the standard over the years is pretty much what Chris Wallace describes. They toss to the other candidate and say, hmm, okay, is that true? Or do you see it that way? Or what do you have to say about that? Uh, even if they think that something a candidate has said has been pretty preposterous. Uh, there have been exceptions. Candy Crowley famously in 2012 when Romney and Obama were arguing about whether or not Obama had ever said terrorism with, refl- uh, with reference to the Benghazi uh, a tragedy. Uh, and... And Romney was saying he never called it terrorism. He never called it terrorism, which was, you know, the, the standard view of many on the right at that time. And Candy Crowley actually at one point almost interrupting him said, well, actually, Governor, he, he did call it terrorism once. However, in hindsight, that was seen as the moderator putting the finger on the scale a little bit in a way that in, you know, in further review, it, it wasn't. Like the way Obama said terrorism, Romney was more right than he was wrong in that instance. And Candy Crowley certainly paid a price for that. She was beaten up a lot about it, uh, not only in the more political press, but among reporters in general who felt we were more comfortable not coming in and saying, "Okay, flag, we're going to give you 15 yards and you have to fall back and give the ball over to the other guy. I mean, that, (laughs) that we're more comfortable not doing that. And believe me, one of the hardest things that these debate commissions have had to do since the 80s when they took this over from the League of Women Voters is choose the moderator and find somebody that both the Republicans and Democrats will accept, especially now that Jim Lehrer has retired. For years, it was always Jim Lehrer, every debate. (laughs) And here is another question sent to us, signed, very frustrated white female. Her question... Hi, everyone! Exclamation point. I love your podcast. How likely are we really to elect Trump as president? Is there a chance that you, the media, are hyping up his chances just to make this race a bit more exciting, to get more listeners like me to tune in by making it sound like it's a closer race than it really is? I'm seriously concerned about this election. My daughter just turned 18, and when I asked her to register to vote, she replied, why? There's nobody I want to vote for. There's nobody I want to vote for either, frustrated white female rights, but it feels wrong to stay home for the first time in my adult life. Well, I think... Uh, I, I recommend think, voting. Yeah, I, I think just in terms of how close the race has gotten, I think there's no question that this race has significantly tightened over the last few weeks. And I think uh, that means, among other things, that Monday's debate is going to be really important. But... Um, Everybody, uh, I, I know I've I keep a running tally of a, of one of these electoral maps on my on my desk, and I kind of 
update the states based on the latest polls and based on what we're thinking. And right now, I have an electoral map that has Hillary Clinton with 272 electoral votes. This is not the official NPR Domenico Montanero electoral <laughs> yeah, map, I'm, I should say. I'm, this is the Scott Detrow personal use electoral map. I want to call you Domenico Jr. right now. Yeah, but, but um, and with Donald Trump with 266. That's a very narrow race. The fact is, a lot of polls have shown Ohio, Iowa, Florida, and North Carolina go from states that were leaning Hillary Clinton to states that are either toss-ups or Donald Trump ahead right now, based on the latest polls. That's a close race. I mean, it's his significantly tightened. She's and she's, I would throw in Nevada into yeah. that list. And Nevada, well. I forgot yeah. Nevada. Yeah. yeah. And in defense of us, we we are not partisan to close races or runaway races. We are not trying to get more listeners. We hope you will just come back to the podcast for our winning personalities. We actually hope people will listen to the podcast even after the election. Well, that's crazy talk, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> There's no life after what the election right now. What are you going to talk about now. then? Policies? Politics never stops. Okay. Again, more listener mail coming your way Monday. Send us your questions at nprpolitics at npr.org. We do read everything that comes in, even if we cannot answer your question on the show. And it does help us to hear what you're curious about. And now it's time for our regular final segment, Can't Let It Go, where we all share one thing we cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Asma? So my Can't Let It Go comes from our esteemed White House colleague, Scott Horsley. He was covering the U.N. refugee meeting earlier this week and told us about um, a quote or a letter that President Obama had received from a little boy named Alex, six years old, from Arizona. Um, Here's a little bit, actually, of that tape of what Alex had to say. Uh, It's in Alex's words. Um, We should acknowledge it comes from the White House website. So uh, here we go. Dear President Obama, remember the boy who was picked up by the ambulance in Syria? Can you please go get him and bring him to our home? Park in the driveway or on the street, and we'll be waiting for you guys with flags, flowers, and balloons. We will give him a family, and he will be our brother. So he's talking about uh, Syrian refugees. In particular, he's talking about the photo that went viral of a little boy, uh, Omran, who was in an ambulance all, you know, covered in dust and blood. Exactly. And And very startled, but he was alive. Um, And so he's talking there about that little boy and saying that, you know, if he doesn't have a family, he can come and stay with my family. I'll share my toys. I will share my bike and I will teach him how to ride it. I will teach him addition and subtraction. Those are the words of a six-year-old boy. So here you'll hear President Obama, yeah, who's reading this letter. And so it was just a really heartwarming moment to remember how the world looks like from a little kid's eyes when often they can't really understand, you know, some of the complexities, I guess, of race or religion or different ethnicities. Hmm. Scott? Um, so, so mine is also uh, about a little kid. Uh, I was on this ill-fated journey to New Hampshire where we flew to New Hampshire, landed, realized the speech we were going there to cover had already begun and that Trump was making fun of us for not being there and basically experienced three minutes of Trump's event after flying from New York to New Hampshire. So when that all ended, uh, the traveling press is all sitting on our bus waiting to go back to the airport to fly to another state after our grand total of like an hour in New Hampshire. And everybody, needless to say, is super bitter. It is just like everybody's in a bad mood. So we're sitting there in the dark on our party bus 
And the Secret <laughs> Service agent who's, um, who's attached to the press corps comes on the bus. And he says, everybody, I know you're really angry right now, but I need you to be happy. Because there is a little girl outside who came to the rally who wants to be a reporter when she grows up. And she wants to come on the bus and say hi to you and ask some questions. <laughs> so you hear people yell, tell her to go to law school. And it's just like everybody's grumpy. And then this girl comes on the bus and she's friendly and she says hi. And she's like, hi, everybody. What's the best thing about being a reporter? And first somebody yells, <laughs> All the access we get, you know, and it just it starts Clearly out crusty, facetious. but 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 very quickly, I think it, it kind of turned the mood, and people started being genuine and saying, "Well, the fact we get to travel all over America and see all of America and talk to voters in different states." And then she was interested in photography, and then all the wire photographers up front were giving her tips, and it was just a nice cheering up moment at a point where where you could focus on on the the actual moment and be a little frustrated about the situation, but it was like, yeah. No, it was a fun moment. Did it make you feel better about your life it at did. that moment? Yeah. You it's... were like, I didn't, I made a good life choice. Uh, well, Mike Clegg is equally adorable. <laughs> Does it involve uh, a little child? It involved Jimmy Kimmel uh, riding in a limousine uh, to the Emmy Awards. This was a video they showed at the beginning of the Emmys where he was going to host. And so he is riding along in this limousine. This and... is a skit. Oh, really? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, that really puts a completely different spin on it now that you told me that. Oh, well, maybe we should just listen to a little of the audio. There's plenty of room up front. Oh, thank you. You're a lifesaver. Thank you. Sir. It's Jeb. Hey, you're driving? Yeah, I'm in between jobs right now. You know you can make $12 an hour driving for Uber? <laughs> I do not know that, but that's great. I have to get downtown to the Emmys. Are you nominated? I am, yeah. Wow. What's that like? Aww. It's nice. It's nice. You think you can win? Well, there's a lot of competition and uh, probably not. Well, here's what I know. If you run a positive campaign, the voters ultimately will make the right choice. You know, it's funny you say that. My psychic... Jimmy, that was a joke. <laughs> Get out of the car. Please laugh. Uh, please laugh. And shave that wig off your face, you godless Hollywood hippie. <laughs> Jeb exclamation point. Jeb exclamation point. Please clap. Please, please clap. clap. All right. Uh, that was fabulous. I mean, it's been a long time since an award show, any of the many, many hundreds of award shows that are on television now, has had an opening video like that to introduce the host that was quite that charming. So, Cam, what can you not let go this week? Well, uh, I don't remember where I was. I'm sure it was either an airplane or an airport. Uh, but I, an, an article came through my Twitter stream from Runner's World magazine online about... Because you are a runner? I uh, am a runner who has mm. not run as much as she would like lately. But it was all about planking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This woman did an experiment where every day she did the plank for 90 seconds at her office. She just get down on the ground, do the plank. Do you know the plank? Yes. Oh, Does yeah. everyone know the plank? Do, do the plank all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's fact, what I, you're doing, Ron. Whenever I pass you by, I'm like, what's he doing? What, what is he doing down there? <laughs> He's doing a plank that looks like a man sitting at a desk. <laughs> it's, it's a modified plank. <laughs> plank for older fellas. Anyway, I was thinking, guys, that we should maybe do a plank challenge ourselves, maybe every day. All set our calendar alerts, do the plank. Here's the situation. Here's the situation <laughs> with that. I'm pro this idea. Yes. But if you're suggesting we do it right now, 
Asma and I both went to Chipotle before <laughs> this podcast began, and I don't know if right now is an ideal moment for me to try and plank. I I'm second just... that. So I think we should try it, though. That's the sound of silence. All right, say. that's all we have for this week. <laughs> okay, that is it for this week. Again, we will have the latest listener mail episode for you on Monday, where we will answer some of your questions setting up that night's debate. Keep up with our coverage until then at nprpolitics.org, on the NPR One app, and on your local public radio station. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. And I'm Ron Elving, planking. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.